Hello and welcome to Turtle Tracks Podcast. This is your host, Brian Van Hooker, and I'm here today with Paul Jenkins, who uh, is known for comics like Origin and um, a thousand other things, but I we're mostly here to talk about his time with Turtles when he was with Mirage and uh, a couple of other things. I mean, he's worked in video games and a lot of new media as well, um, but right now we're going to focus a lot on his comic career. So I guess to get started, um, thanks first of all, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. I'm happy to be here on the show. Thanks. So you've worked in so many different mediums. Like, what do you have a favorite? Like, you're mostly, like I said, you're mostly known for comics, but you've done film, animation, you've done everything. So, like, do you have, like, a preferred? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose so. Um, the one that I don't do as much of is the one that I like the most, which is filmmaking. You know, okay. um, you know, I have a company in, in Atlanta called Meta Studios, M-E-T-A, which is actually funny and ironic because, you know, here comes Zuckerberg and Facebook and their Meta. But we started in 2013 because I coined a phrase here called Meta Media. It was an abstract overview of all media. And Meta um, is an acronym. It stands for Media, Education, Technology and Advancement because I love creators. I want to advance them. I like educating. Um so I trained to be a filmmaker. I, I studied to be an actor, actually, but I spent a lot of time in film school, came to the States, met Kevin and Pete with the Ninja Turtles and did that instead. Um, and it led me down a path that that brought me through a crazy journey, you know, going through Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman and Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird and Marvel and Joe Casada, Jimmy Palmiotti. You know, this is a crazy journey that I've undertaken. Um, so I love making films. Um, I'm good at it. Uh, I enjoy it. Um, the most satisfying in some ways is video games, but to me, maybe the answer to your question that's best is the next thing I do is the thing I love the most. Cool. That's a great answer. Uh, so what motivated you? So, uh, how old were you when you came to America and what motivated you to come here? Uh, I was 20 years old teaching music and drama to learning disabled children in Pennsylvania. Um, I was studying to be an actor. Um, had a great time doing it. Chased a girl towards Massachusetts, <laughs> head up to New England <laughs> on the eternal chase, you know. And um, I was there for a bit, and um, I met two guys that had a black and white comic book. Um, I was I was playing in a band. Um. And we we were working sort of the northeast and and uh those two guys, you know, when you're a musician, what you really are is working waiting tables or or sure. uh or whatever. And and I was waiting tables at a place called the 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 Iron Horse. And the Iron Horse Cafe in Northampton, Massachusetts is like this legendary place where every musician you've ever seen has played that place. Oh, it's okay. a small, intimate cafe, you know, and you will just get everybody in there. So I knew more than more than I knew Kevin and Pete. I knew that the person who was their office manager, Cheryl, and I knew this other lady, April, that would come in. Hmm. Um, and that was the original April. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Yes. And I got to meet the guys and they did an album cover for us. This is just as they're starting to take off. They did a cover for our first album. And um I was playing football, soccer, and I broke my leg playing football. And I knew the guys up in the office. And I said, oh, you know, I lost, I broke my leg again on crutches again. Uh, any chance you guys, any chance you guys need some help? 
at work because I, I can't, you know, play with a band. I can't go touring. And they went, yeah, that, that we really could use help. You know, we sold the rights to the TV show. So I went into this tiny office in Northampton. It is the smallest office I can ever remember being in. And there were there were myself. There was a guy who was beginning to run the licensing side of it, a guy called Jim. And there was his wife, Cheryl, and she was like kind of nominally the office manager. And I came in to do like comic book production because I'd grown up in, in, you know, around comics, I guess. Um, And it blew up. I mean, it exploded. Mm. And there I was 22 years old and it blew up. And, you know, you had no, we thought we were great because we moved across the hallway to a bigger office because we needed one. (laughs) Sure. And so we were like, we got money coming in. We, you know, and that was my first exposure to it. I started working and I'm doing production and all of a sudden I'm editing and doing production by default. And the guy who was doing the licensing was really, um, the best way to put it perhaps is that he was struggling with some addiction issues. Okay. Now, nothing to do with Kevin and Pete, of course. And he couldn't get his job done in many ways. I mean, he was just struggling with some stuff. And so I, at the age of 22, 23, was suddenly spending more time trying to kind of right the ship in the area of the licensing, which was the thing. So I can remember being on the phone call. I mean, I'm definitely around the time of the film. There am I. Who am I? I remember being on a phone call with the CEO of Burger King. And I'm 23 years old. And I'm like... And something happened. I mean, I mean, I learned this in 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 hindsight, was that there I am, and you can either sink or you can swim in that situation. You're a kid. You don't know anything. But by virtue of being perhaps the right person, I think I was, in the right place at the right time, um, I was quite good at it. I was okay at it, you know. I I I didn't sink. I was actually able to help Kevin and Pete get their work done they were completely overwhelmed um they were absolute major rock stars the world was exploding for them and there was an interesting side to that right which is with with a million dollars comes a million problems and so every lunatic in the world was after their money and everyone around that time was hopeful that they could just really hold on to the coattails of kevin and pete and make millions themselves. And and um, and then there was me, and I happened to have grown up in pretty extreme poverty. Um, my father left my family when I was five years old, and my mum raised two children, but you know, we traveled a lot. We we were we were moving in between different places. You know, I grew up on a farm. We quite often didn't have electricity, we didn't have food. Um, quite often. My mum did everything she could to to keep food on the table if if possible. Um, and it was so tough in a sense that, you know, I used to walk like two miles to school and some people would say, well, isn't that rough for a six or seven year old? And the answer is no. I got to see foxes and weasels and stoats and that's what made me the person that I am. And so here I come into this crazy environment where everyone else I think would probably explode or or, or have an agenda. And I became very close friends with Kevin. In fact, I was quite friendly with Pete, you know, but uh, Kevin and I, Kevin would walk in to the offices once it really kicked off. And he, you could see that people would sort of need his attention. And hey, Kevin, and it always reminds me, if you've ever seen the Monty Python film, 
Life of Brian, there's a bit where there's a beggar and he sees that someone's coming and he starts jumping backwards and dancing, going, money for next leper, money for next leper. And he's dancing backwards, trying to get someone's attention. And that often happened to Kevin and Pete. People just wanted their attention. And Kevin would walk into the office and he'd come over to my desk and say, hey, Paul, what's going on? Because I didn't care (laughs) and didn't care about stuff like that. Um, And I would tell him what was really going on. And then he would go about his day. And so it it was fascinating to me in hindsight that the poorest of the people, the one who had grown up with real deprivation myself, was the one person that I sort of felt like, well, I've never been a millionaire and I'm not missing anything and I don't need your money. I mean, if, you know, I, thanks for paying me, you know. So I didn't I didn't write one any of the stuff where so many other people did. The um, What year did you get hired there? 1988 88 so the cartoon had just come on the air and like it was just about to really explode Mm -hmm. oh wow so like and and so you handled like did you work with mark friedman a lot because i know that he was uh like i know that he kind of was the guy who helped market a lot of the stuff yeah Yeah, so we had a system right there was a system of working with mark and his company and that really was run by the the gentleman i told you about jim um jim was the primary interface between us and mark but but jim did have some struggles and so i helped him as much as i could um kevin and pete had to sign licenses that's a paper signature in those days right here's a contract you have to sign it and here's the page where you sign it now think of a think of a license right um, we'll go to plastic frisbees. It doesn't matter what the product was in those days. It doesn't matter what that product was. Somebody was going to get a license to do it because it works like this. I make plastic frisbees. You make plastic frisbees. I go to the Ninja Turtles and I go, can I put your turtles on the frisbees? And I'm going to outsell you 50 to one. Sure. Because it, it was such a crazy phenomenon when it took off. Oh, yeah. So our job Mark's job was to find and negotiate those licenses to get the plastic frisbee makers and to have them work out who's the best deal for Kevin and Pete and then provide those contracts over to Mirage Studios where we were. And Jim's job, in a sense, was to just make sure that Kevin and Pete would sign it. They were aware of it and all that kind of stuff. That's generally what 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 happened. And then very quickly, I went from doing the production on the books to like trying to help Jim. Because it was so overwhelming. There was just too much to do. And oh, yeah. and so what I did was I started working on, almost in a creative manner with a lot of the um with a lot of the the um license or licensees. And in some ways I became there's actually some really funny stories attached to this. I became a part of quite a lot of people listening. I became part of your childhood and you don't even know it. Um for example. I remember talking to the drinks manufacturer, the people that made those little square drinks, you know, the little juice boxes. Oh yeah, sure, yeah? sure, sure. The juice right. boxes. So when they took it, when they when they took it over, I I kind of knew at that point what our product was and what worked. And I remember having a conversation with the guy. You know, quite a lot of our conversations would be some old dude because it's the old school people. They get every license. You know, they got the Muppets and the Power Rangers and this and that and the other. And so they're they're like. I heard, you know, my grandson told me about these Ninja Turtle things. It sounds stupid to me, but, you know, I I bought the license. You know, what do I do, right? I remember talking to that guy, and his job was to basically make the drinks work, you know, and I said, 
this is going to sound crazy, but I can probably help you a little bit. So what's the most popular flavor? And I think his his answer was like, you know, I think maybe orange and then grape, right, or something. And the you know blue raspberry and then and then like but even then they did they didn't realize that they should make the drinks the colors of the ninja turtles right they didn't sure. know to do that like we knew we understood that the colors of the bandanas was important right yeah so I remember saying to him okay I'm going to tell you something that you're going to thank me for you're going to either believe or you don't whatever the red flavor is the one that you say is the least popular make twice as much of that as anybody else because Raphael's really popular I'm telling you right now <laughs> and then. The grape flavor is going to be your least popular because Donatello's great. He's actually my favorite turtle always. Same. But um, but you won't need it as much. And so he bought into that program and he did it. And he called me up like, a year later. I remember, young man, you did me a good service right there. And I was like, that's what we do, right? <laughs> so in a way, there's there's all kinds of stuff that we we were trying to help the licensors, the licensees, I should say, sorry. So Mark's job was to make it work. His job was to give them some guidance. It was job was to pass them off to us. Our job was to sometimes do the creative. Our job was to help the artists do the work, supply the artwork, make sure that there was, and we wanted to stay on brand. And um, this, this may sound a bit rough, but you know, we started to get really frustrated at times with people that would cut corners and, and, and cheat the system because ultimately it was only going to attack the longevity of the Ninja Turtles. If there was substandard art, if there was stuff that they made that was crappy, um, all those kind of things, if that happened, then we were going to have less of an impact as a license. So I remember. <laughs> this is my idea it probably speaks really badly of me but we just got tired of people cheating okay and i remember one guy who was supposed to make plastic and import it from china i believe i know it was imported plastic and he had the license to do those plastic swimming pools that you find in walmart yeah, yeah those sure. kind of things those like those hard plastic ones right big old hard plastic things yeah he yeah, had yeah, the, the, the license to yeah, make those yeah yeah and and we I told him and I'm like, do not get your own art. Just use this art, man. Like everybody likes the art that we put out. Anyway, just use that. Yeah. Do not save yourself a hundred dollars. He did it. We said, no, that's rejected. He did it anyway. We said, no, it's rejected. You can't use that art. No, that's not the Ninja Turtles. It's not the brand. He makes the plastic. He imports it because there was a lot of arrogance, you know, in this business sure. as well. And so we're like, listen, we told you 500 times. Yeah. So eventually he's he thinks I'm gonna I'm gonna ask for permission. I'm gonna ask for forgiveness, not permission. Sure. And we said, no, no way, you're not putting it out. You're gonna have to reprint all your plastic. And we told you from the beginning. And I remember uh, Jim and I had this um this thing. We <laughs> we would we had a dartboard and we up in Jim's office and we would basically like retire numbers. We we thought we would, you know, there would be like licensees that we'd killed because, you know, he must have had an aneurysm, this guy, because he was just so frustrated that he couldn't cheat us. But we were very strong natured. And so, um, you know, we did not let substandard stuff happen. I like to think that Mirage Studios is a massive part of why the Ninja Turtles retained its its value because we said – and this this came from Kevin and Pete. You know, we said no. If we're going to do this, you have to stick to to what you're supposed to do. And we never let stuff like that slide. I think that's that was powerful. important. Sorry, good. 
the artwork that ended up on everything was mostly um Steve Levine and Ryan Brown, right? Like that was on everything. Yeah, Steve Levine, Steve Levine especially, <clears throat> Ryan yeah. Brown. Like I know Ryan Brown inked Levine's work as well. Yeah, I mean. right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um Steve Levine had been a, a longtime friend of Kevin's. Um, there were a couple of other artists, you know, Michael Dooney. Yeah. Um, and those those are all like comic book artists who had done really well in the black and whites. Um, they had these really cool books. So they were still doing their comics and they were coming in and doing a lot of the artwork for the for the Ninja Turtles, and they were part of the organization. They had a gig, man. I mean, that gig, if you know, oof, you know, the money that those guys made was was fantastic for them, I think. And and <clears throat> you know, we had a style guide. And so we wanted people to use this content and that style so that people get some consistency. And those were the artists that would do it. And uh, and it was important. It was important to maintain that level of quality and to to have the artists around us, you know? It's interesting to me. Like, there's some of that stuff, um, like, like the Burger King stuff was a little different, right? Mm -hmm. Like the toys and like, so would that have been like their internal people or a freelancer or whatever? Cause that like some of this stuff looks a little bit off model and it's interesting because it's so different from the stuff that said that Steve did perfectly and was on everything. Right. And so what you're probably seeing is that when it would get into something like Burger King, you're dealing with a bigger corporation that thinks they know better than we do. Sure. And and then there was a period of time when we were allowing outside artists to be brought in and we would have to monitor and see whether the art was was working okay and then you're dealing with a giant corporation like 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 burger king but it's so lucrative in some ways that you're sort of like yeah let's get this done you know sure. it's okay and so i think if we had it the way that we wanted it it would have been coming primarily from from us as the source mm. But at times, there were plenty of licensees that we worked with where it didn't come from us. Um, there's a famous one. <laughs> this is a little bit behind the veil, but it's one of my favorite Ninja Turtle stories of my time there. There's a famous one of the um, the pinball machine. Okay. So the pinball machine, you know, there is a story back from back in the day. Um, April... The original April is the April that you see in the first comics. April, yeah. you know, is is um, mixed race lady, you know, and uh, she was Kevin's first wife. She was the April that he wrote into the book. Um, and you see her in the stories, yeah? Yeah. And then Kevin and Pete were really faced with a difficult decision. It was one of the many decisions that they make. And I think, you know, if you guys want to get a sense of the context of what they had to deal with, you know, there's a couple of times where had they not made the right decision, you wouldn't have the Ninja Turtles. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't have been a thing. And there were two pivotal, really, two or three pivotal things that they had to deal with. One of the things they had to deal with was was being made an offer by, I think, Marvel. Uh, they had pitched it to Marvel as naive comic creators. Do you want to do our Ninja Turtle books? We want to work for Marvel. And Marvel said, no, thanks, go away. <laughs> when the Ninja Turtles got popular, Marvel came back to them and said, we'll buy it from each of you for a million dollars each. And they they sweated over that decision. Sure. Because it was more money they could have imagined. And they basically woke up the next day and both said, let's say no. That is a huge decision. That is yeah. a massive decision for for two guys who came from such humble beginnings. But they they rejected that offer and look what happened. Right. So that's yeah. one. Another one that came about was really a sort of a built-in racist issue with April. 
what was she going to be and what would she look like? And, um, you know, as you know, she became the girl in the yellow jumpsuit. Yeah. Um, but that's not what they had pitched. And and the turtles, obviously, were not the turtles that were in the book. So it was a kind of weird thing. You know, they had these kids' bandanas and all that kind of stuff, skateboards and pizza and stuff. So Kevin and Pete were faced with a decision, especially Kevin. You know, will we the, – the, the, the people of the animators basically said it's very difficult to animate – black people especially their hair which is just as overtly racist we don't want to do it kind of thing yeah, we, of course yeah and and they had to decide do you know do we do we continue and they decided okay we will you know we'll we'll do this anyway it leads you forward to this crazy thing so here's april in a yellow jumpsuit this is the thing we get and then there's this we get this artwork in i'm working with the license or licensee for the pinball uh, machine in those days, pinball was awesome. They really good pinball machines were coming out, and Ninja Turtles was no exception. It was a great pinball, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's really good. And um, so they sent me the artwork, and I I got it, you know, because we just divide Jim and I were just dividing at this point, trying to kind of look at it. And I what we would then do at this point was we had the confidence to intercept the stuff that we knew wasn't going to work, get them to fix it, then have them submit it, and then Kevin and Pete could sign off on it. Make sense? Sure. Yeah. So I see April and I was like, yeah, you know, the only thing that's kind of weird about the way they drew April was that she didn't, you know, I'm not trying to be silly, but it's just, she didn't have any chest and that's not what she looked like in the cartoon. <laughs> she actually had a chest and and they drawn her like a boy. And so I got the copy of the artwork and I, I drew this big W for her boobs I drew this big W to say to them, hey, guys, you need to remember that's a markup. They drew her boobs on the on the artwork as big as I drew on the W, and suddenly she had, like, these pneumatic breasts that were bigger than <laughs> her head. And that's what came out on, on the Ninja Turtles um, pinball machine, which, you know, every young boy across the entire world should thank me for that because it was an yeah. accident. <laughs> Yeah. We have you to thank for April's boobs in the pinball machine. That's great. You, you do. And so, you know, I was in there, you know, we would work creatively with licenses and, you know, the the drinks and the pinball machine. And you can see there's like hundreds of those stories, you know. And then, of course, there were all the toys that were being made and how the characters were being created, where they were being pulled from. Um, you, you know, one thing that was that is interesting to me, I saw a documentary about the toys that made us. I think it was that one. Oh yeah, uh -huh. I've seen it. Yeah, and and I think it was amazing to me that they had the opportunity to absolutely show what really was the truth. You know what really happened. It's right there, the history of Mirage. You could have done this whole thing, and then I watched it. I'm like, this is a load of crap. That's not what happened. Yeah, they're, they're, they 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 kind of breeze by a lot. They also take credit for like, oh, we reunited Eastman Laird, whereas that didn't uh, happen. They already knew each other. They saw each other all the time. Yeah, and like the Turtle Power documentary, which had been done like two hour, two years earlier, I think, was like they had facilitated it, and it was like they kind of they breeze past a lot. Yeah, and I know it's short; it's twenty two minutes, but it really like to the point where they're like oh, giving misinformation. Which yeah, is, they gave misinformation, and and yeah. it's sort of like it's an interesting thing for me because yeah. I watched it and I'm like, well, I was there, so that stuff that they're talking about that didn't happen. Okay, let them get on with it. You know, like who cares, right? And I talked to Did Kevin you about Playmates it. Playmates or just the other licenses? Because I know Playmates kind of was obviously the biggest of them. Am yeah, I, right? I did. I didn't have to deal with Playmates that much, okay. really. Um, and 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 CBS. I mean, I think what would happen is we would hmm. get it in. We'd we'd read 
we would read the way the scripts were because because there's just not enough hours in the day, right? Yeah. We'd we'd I personally would would sort of talk to people over at Playmates, but essentially it was more to facilitate the actual more valuable interaction between Mirage and and Playmates, which was the artists helping design content. Sure. So usually it was those, and it was setting that up really. I didn't really need to do anything with Playmates because that worked just fine, right? The stuff I had to work with was stuff like the electronic talking toothbrush and stuff like that, just I getting it made, you know, yeah. It's funny, as an adult now, so I, I, as you can see, I have this crazy turtle collection behind me. Um, and like, I, I mostly is stuff that I got as a kid and I love the toys and I still have, like m- most of my collection is toy stuff. But now the stuff I get excited about is like, the dumb little things that yeah. like nobody cared enough. Like the like, third, like I have like it, this is a snow globe of Michelangelo. Like the dumb <laughs> stuff that like like wasn't didn't seem special as a kid, but now it's like oh, there's a Burger King Kids Club whatever thing or like that's the stuff that if I see that in a thrift store now, I get really excited about is like just random collections from like because I mean there's one thing back there. I, I have a uh, sneaker snappers, which are the dumbest invention. Yep. They tie your shoe that you yeah. put them over shoelaces. I don't know why, but like that's the stuff that I like as a collector. I get excited about now is those those other licenses that are like they were every it's just everything. So well, I'm I'm about to blow your mind because at a certain point, um, we had this big toy cupboard because they sent us a bunch of stuff every time they made a thing, right? And it was very frustrating that people would raid that toy cupboard all the time and it just. Mm. Sure. You know, it didn't belong to them, but here they would come in and see, figure it was theirs. And so at a certain point, I got the key to the toy cupboard and kicked everyone out and said, <laughs> no, you know, this isn't, this doesn't belong to, because it was just me. It was the way I grew up. I, I, I didn't, sure. I didn't have this thing where I desperately needed someone else's value. I was busy trying to get by. Right. Yeah. And so once I saw p- people, Acting as if it was theirs, acting in this entitled manner, it just rubs me the wrong way, even as a kid, even as a 22-year-old, 23-year-old, right? And um I I just I just kind of went, okay, I'm booting you out. And you know, the craziest thing is had you walked into that toy cupboard, had you had the opportunity to walk in that toy, you would have seen the stuff that now. You're like, what is going? I want all of that, right? Yeah, sure. So many cell paintings that were sent to us. Oh, I love those from from the show. I have five cells from the show signed yeah. by the, all the original voice actors. Right. I could have hundreds, and they're, I love that they're out there because I think it was the only cartoon doing that kind of thing. Most of those That's things right. got thrown away. I yeah. love that they released those. We had a, we had a massive pile of hundreds of them, and they got oh, stolen. Cool. They got they got stolen. Toys got stolen. You know, what What you should look at is there was an original uh, license before they signed all the licenses. They had a lead figure or figurines, this tiny little license with one company. Dark Horse. Yeah, it might be Dark Horse, yeah. Because uh, yeah, we, we knew the Dark Horse guys really well. We had a few of those sitting around on the ledge. You know, that would be the first Ninja Turtle license, really. Yeah. Um, you know, and stuff like that. Toys coming in, you know. All these new toys would come in, and it's just like Kevin and Pete were super generous, so they would like get you know get them and give them. And a big thing for me uh, just was the way that I think we should have been. I realized the power of the Ninja Turtles and how important we were, and so um, I did a lot of work with Make a Wish. You know, uh, I thought that was super important for us because 
I, I cared about it, you know, and I was I was allowed to. <laughs> so we did make a wish stuff. And there's there's some parts of that that are so profound that when I look back on my time there, if you ask me what's the most important thing I did, my answer would be make a wish. Hmm. Absolutely. What was Eastman like back then? Um, so Kevin, who remains one of my best friends of all, t- you know, to this day, I mean, he now and I have now known each other for 35 years. And, um, you know, he, he gave me my first job in this business early on. I became friendly with him. As you may know, I went to Tundra publishing with him. Mm -hmm. Um, Tundra was a difficult place, but you know, he said, I can't offer you what you're being paid at Mirage. And, and I wasn't too fond of the sort of madness you know, the entitlement and the, the love of money and stuff that, that kind of pervaded Mirage a little bit. So I moved on very quick. I wanted to go there. You know, I didn't care about my wages. I cared about whether or not we were doing something great. Right. Let's, let's be clear. Mirage was great, but I just cared, you know, about that. So Kevin and I hit it off very well. Right. He usually would walk into the offices. Like I say, all the beggars would you know, kind of run and try to get his attention. And he usually just come up to my my table and just say, hey, Paul, what's going on? And I'd sort of tell him for real what was going on. And then he'd go about his day. And then, you know, I got friendly with Kevin. Uh, and so Kevin has been one of the most important people in my life. And I think, you know, there there's some stuff, you know, that I can say about Kevin that, that people wouldn't know. I think people understand that Kevin's a very generous guy, right? Mm-hmm. I think everyone knows that. Kevin is generous to a point of having been too generous to people quite often. And that's okay. Right. That's, I think when you have millions of dollars, it will highlight the weakest part of your personality. Well, guess what the weakest part of Kevin's personality is generosity. So that's not a bad thing. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I love Kevin, you know, he's, he's a very close friend of mine. And he gave me my first job. He's been supportive of me uh, through my career. He gave me opportunities, but also as a as a person, I'll I'll tell you something that Kevin told me right at the beginning. I'm like, I get it. I'm there. He and I are standing around. I I know what it was. We got in a check for the film at one point, or something to do with a Burger King check, or something like that. And it was a check that had been sent to Kevin. And back in those days, it was a paper check, right? It wasn't even transferred. And so we get it, and Kevin's got to go put it in the bank. And he and he wants to show it to me because we'd just become mates, right? So we go in the toy cupboard, actually, of all places. We shut the door, and he's like, i got to show you this, man. And he shows me, and I'm like, wow, that's a pretty good check. And he's like, no, look again. And I realize he's got two two more zeros than I thought. I'm like, are you kidding me? And that moment was so funny because we're giggling. We're like drunk with this. Like, what is happening to us, right? And so Kevin said to me, look, I'm not a genius. I'm a lobster cook from Maine that was rejected by a bunch of people. No one wants my art. No one cared about me. And I got lucky. And I made the Ninja Turtles and and, and people like Mark Friedman and Pete and and the the toy companies and they made me wealthy and they they helped me so to know that kevin was like that that he appreciated and he had that humility of of where he came from and why 
and and all of that. Kevin maintains that to this day. Go meet him at a convention. He's always really pleasant, really good. And it taught it taught me early. I come from those humble beginnings. You come near me at a convention, and I'll be like the happiest, nicest. But I like people, right? And so I learned from Kevin, right? Now Pete, um, I was very friendly with Pete too. I used to go riding motorcycles with him. Uh, Pete actually saw me have a crash one time that he said is the most spectacular thing he's ever seen, and he's <laughs> never gonna he's never gonna be able to get out of his mind because I should be dead, right? And we were dri- riding all that, and Pete was different from Kevin because he's a bit older than Kevin. And Pete was a bit more reserved and a bit more cautious, right? So Kevin was so gregarious and would give everyone the shirt off his back and people would take it and that sucked, right? Yeah. Pete, on the other hand, was was much more reserved. If it then hits you that the all of the money hits the weakest part of your personality, I would say that the weakest part of personality, maybe Pete's, was that Pete was at times overly cautious, right? Too sure. worried. Yeah. Um, and Kevin and Pete both told me one time they they felt that the fact that the two of them had gotten together, it was the perfect pairing as well. Kevin was way too ambitious. Pete was way too cautious. And somehow between the two of them, they ended up with the right mix, right? <clears throat> and so, you know, uh, I was really friendly with Pete. And, and then when I went to Mirage, I would just see Pete a little bit, you know. Um, I would say hi to him, talk to him a little bit. Um, but really, I was busy with Mirage at that point. Um, doing the licensing thing, what would you say was the weirdest or dumbest or whatever product that you helped facilitate? I'm curious. Oof, there are so many. Talking toothbrush. <laughs> Talking toothbrush was so exciting. I love that. Well, I toothbrush days. is probably up there, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> You get to brush your teeth for a certain amount of time and it just talks to you the whole time. Like we, dumbest... we couldn't handle two minutes <laughs> of teeth brushing. So, <laughs> be encouraged by the Ninja Turtles to keep going, dude. So stupid. Uh <laughs> stuff like that. You know, the sneakers thing was good, actually. The sneaker snaps, whatever those things were called. Yeah, you just, was, yeah. I mean, you know, you ran out of like what was the weirdest thing. I don't know. All of it, man. It was teen. Listen, I've lectured at colleges all over the world. I've spoken about, you know, the future of storytelling. I do all this kind of stuff. And sometimes I'm like, let me tell you what doesn't work. I actually got a great anecdote. I'll, I'll do the minute of this anecdote. I was supposed to speak at Kennesaw State University. I think it was like the opening speech of the year to all the parents and the new students, so whatever that's called, right? You know, I don't even know because I didn't go to the American education system. Um, so I go there to be the keynote speaker, and I listen. And on the way, I'm driving there, and my wife turns to me, and she said, well, what are you gonna, what's your speech about? And I said, I don't know. And she's like, no, you can't do that. I'm like, I don't know, man. I'll get it as I go. And she's like, no. So she's flipping out because she's like, don't you have a written speech? I'm like, no, I'll make it up as I go along. And she's like, no way. So she's so nervous. And I listened to it and I listened to the band leader. He talked before me. And then I got up and I I looked at everybody and I said, let me tell you something, okay? I need a reality check for everyone in this room. You want want to be a filmmaker? You're not going to be a filmmaker. Let's have a reality. You want to you want to work in the comic industry. You can't break into comics. Let me tell you how you can't break into comics. You can't go to San Diego and show up and be a writer and find like some giant title and go, "Hey, I you know I want to write your title," and then have them go, "Yeah, sure, you can write it," and then they give you a job, right? You can't you can't help shape the video game industry as a storyteller. You can't walk in with some crazy idea and make it work, right? 
And so the room is silent and all of these students and parents are like, this is the worst thing I've ever heard. And I said, <laughs> I said, yeah, that's what they tell you. And you know, those things I just said, I've done all of them. And it, the place flipped out. And I said, here's four words that don't work. You ready? Teenage, mutant, ninja, and turtles. That's never going to work. And so it's always this thing of like, tell me it can't be done because I've already done it. Tell me that Ninja Turtles is no good because they were and we knew it. So tell me that my next idea or that the next thing that you want to create, Brian, or any of these things that people say you can't do, rubbish. Of course you can do it. And, and if you just believe in it and make it work, that's what makes it work. And so Kevin believed in it. Pete believed in it. Mark Friedman believed in it. Our organization believed in it. And then the world believed in it. And I, I'll never forget some profound moments of being at Mirage that taught me how to be a person. Right. Like, like I learned about storytelling from my little cousin, Billy, because he was a little kid and he comes over to the States and you can't see the Ninja Turtles in Britain at the time because ninjas were not legal. So it's called Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles over there. And yep. he'd never seen the film and it had come out in the States. And his cousin, Paul, worked with the Ninja Turtles. <clears throat> and my cousin, Billy, was obsessed with Leonardo. So he sat on my lap in the cinema. I got him in and my aunt sat next to me and Billy sat on my lap. And every time Leonardo threw a punch, Billy threw a punch. <laughs> and he he lived and died. And in the film, Leonardo gets hurt really badly. And Billy's flipping out, you know, like he got hit. What do you mean he got punched? You know, yeah. but, but, you know, so I learned about the power of story right there and then in that moment, because it to my my little cousin was everything. He was Ninja Turtles was everything to him. It was his universe. And so, you know, when you take that forward, you realize that the power of storytelling is so massive and that we have the ability to move mountains with story. And that's what Ninja Turtles did. Can you remember the lines that were around cinemas at the time? Because kids just wanted desperately to get into into the Ninja Turtle film that you couldn't get in a theater. It was just lines. People would wait for five hours to get in to see the Ninja Turtles. Remember, because I haven't seen a phenomenon like that since. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. You know, I'm curious. Um, uh, you ended up writing issue number 43 of the book. I did. Yes. Well, how, how did that come about? Because is it, Am I wrong if that's the only one that you wrote? It was the only one that I wrote, yes. Okay. Um, why, why was that? I'm curious. So this because I wasn't known as a writer. I mean, mm. I was a creative person. I wasn't known as a writer. Um, one of the things that I mentioned to you a little while ago was that um, you cannot go to San Diego and get yourself a job as a writer if you've never written anything. I'd written one Ninja Turtle comic. I, I went down I went down to San Diego. I, I tell you exactly how it happened. I was at, I was at Tundra. I wasn't happy with the quality of what I could see was coming out in comics. I thought I happened to be Alan Moore's editor and I was sitting in Alan Moore's house in Northampton in England, talking with Alan about big numbers, which I was the editor of. And most people don't realize how many big books I did. And, and I, I saw Alan's breakdown of, of his story and it was just genius. And I, but what I realized was I think like this creatively, I'm not saying I'm on Alan's level. I'm just, wow what alan's doing there is, is sort of like the way that i think sure. so i told him hey alan you know like i see what you're doing there and i i've sort of been thinking like that do you think i should maybe try to 
do what I felt I was trained to do, which be a storyteller. You think I should try doing comics? He went, yeah. Yeah, sounds like a good idea, Paul. <laughs> so, so I came back and San Diego was coming. I went down to San Diego Comic-Con. I sat with Karen Berger and I said, no, I was told that Lou Stathis was looking for a new writer for Hellblazer. So I went over to Lou and I said, hey, Lou, I understand you're looking for a new writer. Writer and he said, "What have you written?" I said, "I've got to be honest with you, I haven't really written anything before." And he went, "Okay." And I tried out, and six weeks later, they called me up and went, "Congratulations, you're the new writer of Hellblazer." No one can break in that way, which means anyone can break in that way. Hmm. And so, you know, to me, be I did do one book, but I was very busy at Mirage doing other things. Right, sure. I really wanted to do that stuff, but I was busy doing other things. I had a lot to do. I couldn't really be a writer in those books, you know. Sure. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, so after that, so then you went to. Um, I know that you were at Marvel for a time. I would love to talk a little bit about, and this is jumping ahead quite a while, but I'm super curious about the character of Sentry, which I remember being this huge event. If people don't know this, like it was like this huge announcement. Oh my God, they found this hero that predated Superman and all this other stuff. And it was this, and then it was a hoax, mm -hmm. right? So I, mean, I don't know if you can take me some of the behind the scenes of this, but like, where did Sentry come from? Who thought like, where did this, what is this whole thing? Like what, 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 what generated Sentry? Okay. So great. Yeah. It, it came from me. It's my character. I created it and I pitched it for six years before it got published. Okay. And it was reject. It was rejected, kind of like the Ninja Turtles, right? Um, I was working at Tundra. I had been thinking about being a creative person. I actually went from Tundra to a company called Majestic in Cincinnati, and they filed Chapter Eleven bankruptcy the day I landed. Um, I went to Scoreboard. So I'd been an editor in chief of a couple of companies. Come back to Massachusetts, um, but. During my time at Tundra, just after Ninja Turtles, I realized I was going to be a creative person and I wasn't sure which direction I was going. Um, I, I wanted to do it. And I then got Hellblazer, I believe. Okay. So now, now I'm writing Hellblazer and I know Karen Berger, the editor-in-chief of, 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 um, of, uh, of uh, Vertigo at DC. Karen is the person who gave me my first job, and I will eternally be grateful to her for taking a chance on this idiot. Now, how did she decide to let some guy walk in and go, I've never written anything, can you let me write Hellblazer, and then give him Hellblazer? Everybody wants to write Hellblazer. And, and I wrote more issues than anybody, right? So I'm in that space, and I talk to Karen, and I'm like, Karen, I'm, I'm trying to find a place in this that I understand. Now, she said to me, at the time, she said, because of the way Vertigo is, she probably wouldn't live in that space where 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 she would do like Watchmen. You know, it wouldn't be Vertigo. It'd be so she would say if if, if Alan came to me with Watchmen, I'd probably say no. I don't. I don't think it's a Vertigo book, right? Sure. And I had come to her because I was really excited about the character called Our Man. And Our Man takes a pill for, and he becomes a superhero for an hour. And that to me was such a metaphor for drug addiction. Mm. Um, if I were taking a pill that could give me 20, you know, one hour and 24 hours of superpowers, I'd be obsessed. I would be an addict. And so would you. Right. And so I wanted to write about addiction and mental health issues and stuff using these superheroes. And she said, we, we just don't do superheroes. You know, we're just, it's not for me. 
but you sort of couldn't really get DC to do them either because no matter how many clever things they might have published, they still say no every time, right? It's been a big thorn in my side throughout this entire time I've worked in this business. So I, I loved Our Man, and she said, why don't you just create a new character that sort of does the things that you're saying? I love what you're saying. It's a great, and maybe we can entertain that. I went home and I created the Sentry, and the Sentry's like the idea behind the Sentry was just that he, he – had been a superhero but he had been addicted to his power it had been something and so he couldn't climb out of it and because he had a mental health issue he was the sentry the golden guardian of good from the early days and he was also the void the thing that he fought and so he was a problem for the universe for the world he was gonna he was destined to fight himself he had this duality that would externally manifest so he was his own worst enemy and I believed in this story so wholeheartedly. I knew it was such a good thing. And I, I believe and believed that it was such a thing for people with mental health issues or family members who have mental health issues. This was the story. And I, I fought that bloody thing because like, I kept pitching it. Everyone would say no. I felt like I'd get close. But I started working at Marvel. And the first thing I really wrote, the second thing I wrote, I, I, did, I did Werewolf by Night. They liked it. They called me up. They said, we're doing this Marvel Knights thing. I wrote The Inhumans and it blew up and it won an Eisner and they hadn't won one for a long time. And they said, you can do whatever you want to do. You can do Spider-Man. You can do the Avengers. You can do whatever you like. And I said, I want to do the Sentry. And they're like, not that stupid thing. <laughs> and so I just persuaded them because I persuaded Jay. And Jay Lee said, yes, I do want to do the Sentry. Um... It was a good story. It was important. It was a really good book. And I knew what I was doing with that character and I knew what it meant. And so we did it and it it just, it worked. And here we were saying this was a hero that had been a contemporary of Reed Richards and the first heroes, you know, of the Human Torch and Namor that had come out, but everyone had forgotten him because you're supposed to forget him because if you remember him, it destroys the Marvel universe. Hmm. Cool, cool story. And like you guys played it in our reality too, though. If this wasn't like that, archival art was found and all this other stuff. Yes, we did. <laughs> Which I remember being like, like I remember it being this huge deal at the time. It was a huge deal. We created a mythical, non-existent artist called Artie Rosen. Because while I don't know a lot about comics, I do remember that was that there was a letter called Artie Simic. And there was a letterer from the old days called, Sa I think, Sam Rosen. So I made a an artist called Artie Rosen who had drawn the century and had been forgotten. And he had a wife called Blanche Rosen. And then when, when he died, we persuaded Wizard to print a fake um, tribute to him. And we suggested in that article with Wizard, it was complete rubbish, that she'd found some old stuff that Artie had left behind and she was sending it over to the Marvel offices. And then the story was that I'm over at the Marvel offices, I'm looking around and they've thrown it in a cupboard because it's so powerful that they're supposed to forget it. And everyone's got this like psychic barrier to looking at it. And I'm going through the things. I'm like, what's this stuff? And I pull out these old sketches and they're like, I don't know. It's just some old stuff that I, we don't know where it came from. And then, so I go, can I, can I mess with it? And I take it home and I look at it, but it's, you know, you throw it on the shelf for a year because you're not supposed to look at it and all this crap. And then eventually I say, hey, look, this I think this might be something that Stan did with Artie. And they go, yeah. 
right? Artie Rose never existed. Stanley didn't create the century I did, but it was just cool. And we then went around for a year or so promoting that I had found this stuff. Now, Joe Casada is fantastic at this. He's a showman, right? That's why he became the editor-in-chief that was most successful after Stan, right? Me, I'm terrible at it. I'm British. My wife always says I'm the worst liar in the world. And I got to sit there on a stage and tell everyone that I found all this stuff. I was horrible. Right? Just... I was subscribing to Wizard at the time. And I remember being like, being had by this whole thing. Yeah, great. you were had. It was a great idea. And so the idea was that, you know, the the, the promotion of it fit the story of it. That's what I was very proud of. Was the... Wizard an, a willing accomplice or an unwitting accomplice? They were a willing accomplice. They were cool. They helped us out with it a little okay. bit. They understood why it was cool and what was interesting about it. And uh, I think they liked me a lot. They put me on the top ten all the time. And they, 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 you know, they, they liked that kind of stuff at the time. They would do this thing. They do lots of articles about me. Um, and so they, they were like, yeah, we love this. We're in. This is kind of cool. And uh, and it blew up. And it came to the point where there was all this stuff. Like one of the Century stories that Brian wrote was like the Century confronting me. So I'm a Marvel character where the Century comes <laughs> back and meets his own creator. Um, the, the you know the Century, you know, I did a second series, and then I had a third series that I never got to. You never know, right? Um, but but I don't I don't do that mainstream comic stuff as much anymore. Um, so, you know, the Sentry's an important, powerful character to me because I think he is the one that really allows us to understand that we can tell stories about the nuances of mental health issues. You know, jumping forward another decade or so, I, I wanted to ask you about origin. Like, I, I had done this piece um, for Inverse, the uh, the oral history of Wolverine, and um, we kind of covered the major wolverine stories i wasn't able to reach you then but i'm I, one question i had for you that was super curious about was when you did origin how did like they kind of had this unclear muddled hints at wolverine's story up until origin how did you decide what wolverine's origin would be and did you go back and think try to piece the puzzle together um okay so here here's the thing about me that most people don't like if they're big fans of comics i don't know anything about comics right I'm a writer that works in comics a lot. I do now. I've done lots of them, so I, I know them. But sometimes I want to go like such and such character, and I'll go, I, I who, right? Because I just I've never been because I'm a writer and I work as a creative person that loves like the human condition and writing about it. So it was my kryptonite that I didn't know anything about the Inhumans, for example. I never heard of them. And when when Jay called me up, he said, "Let's do the Inhumans for Marvel Knights," and I said, "Who are they?" Right. And then he sent me a couple of comics. I went, oh, great. And so I wrote that entire Eisner Award winning series off of the back of two five page Jack Kirby stories. Right. Wolverine was the same. And so it came down like this. And I've obviously I've been asked this question a lot. Um, even it's funny because I reread my write up in the, the, the new uh, deluxe edition. And the thing that I wrote wasn't actually quite true, uh, which I'm, I'm kind of interested to why I wrote it that way, um, because actually it happened. Well, I, I, I know why I wrote it this way. So do you want the actual real version of how it was created? I'll tell you, but it contains a swear word. Am I allowed to swear? Oh, my God, please say whatever the fuck you fantastic. want. Fantastic. OK, fantastic. <laughs> this is what happened. I had one an Eisner for Inhumans. Sentry was good. I'd taken over Spider-Man, I think. And my brand was fixing stuff, 
was was you know spider-man was really struggling hulk had been struggling they give it to me it fixes it writes the ship creatively and so i you know joe said you're like our fix it guy you, you you know you fix our stuff you know thank you right all good all right so joe said because i had worked in editorial for so many years on the other side of the table because i'd been alan moore's editor and neil gaiman's editor and you know dave mckean and, and george pratt like he's like do me a favor, Paul, come to my first editorial retreat because I've got to get a bunch of editors that have been just absolutely blown up for years, some confidence because he's now the editor-in-chief. I mean, you no one saw that coming, right? So I go, yeah, man, of course I'll go over there. So I go and it was at Nancy, his wife's house, um, and, you know, as we do it, as we go through this thing, um, I guess Bill Jemis, the president of Marvel, had been standing at the back and he'd been looking at me because he said he said at lunch, he said, Paul, you're a really affable guy. And normally I see you center of the attention, loving everybody, and all I can see is a frown on your face. Why is that? And I said, Bill... You're supposed to be the fucking house of ideas, and everybody time sometimes someone has a good one, you say no. And he says, he said, Yeah, I get that feeling too. Because all the editors were nervous and they all thought they were going to get fired. And it was just everybody was walking on eggshells wondering why we were there and what was happening. And all the ideas were crap and no one had any thought. And he said, Well, what do you have in mind? And I said, Well, wh why do you always say you can't do that book? I actually had known Grant Morrison a bit. So Grant and I were friends. And, I, you know, Grant told me a thing one time. He said, if I go to DC, I do Arkham Asylum. It does really well. I pitch him Arkham Asylum too. And they're like, well, I don't know, Grant. And it's like, why don't you know? I'm good at this. <laughs> you know, um, 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 and so, you know, I said, Bill, it's just, um, it's just frustrating to me. Well, what do you think? And I said, well, why don't you do something like, wolverine's origin like like 35 years been walking around scratching his head and frankly you know my memory of it was that bill almost said wolverine origin the moment that i did he's like yeah like wolverine origin and i'm like yeah exactly so it's like that kind of conversation right over sure. over over a burger i'm like you know you could do like wolverine or something and he's like yeah wolverine's origin. so it's like that interaction so as far as bill is concerned like that's a yes why not? Why would you not? Right. And everybody in the room was a no on something like that. So we go over to Joe, who's eating a burger, and we take him to one side. And Bill goes, Joe, let me ask you a question. Why would you say we can't do the origin of Wolverine? And Joe goes, You can't do the origin of Wolverine. And Bill went, Why? Why can't you do the origin of Wolverine? And Joe thought for a second, to his credit, and he went, You know, honestly, Bill, I don't know. I don't know why we can't do the origin of war. We just say we can't, don't we? And Bill's like, that's the point. Blame Paul. I've been talking to Paul. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's my fault. So Joe then got up for the very first moment of the afternoon session and said, I want to put something to you, to all the editors. You know, you're not getting fired today. You're not getting a pink slip. I want you people to make the best stuff. And Bill Jemis said, to his credit, I don't want marketing to tell you what we're making. I want you to tell me what you're making and marketing's job is to sell it. Make good books. He was really high on the Inhumans and stuff that I'd done. And so Joe said to the editors, why not the origin of Wolverine? And they went, no way. 
nope. And, and he called me in and I sort of went, look, everyone, my feeling on it is this. You answer two or three questions. Where did he come from? Where was he born? How old is he? What was his name? Why did he forget? And by answering those two questions, you raise a thousand more. Listen, Brian, they raised a thousand more. They did Wolverine Origins for 10 years after that. Oh, yeah. You know, you know so, so to me, I felt like I was right in hindsight. I was correct. It was the thing to do. And stop having him walk around scratching his head. And and what I was most proud of, sure, we gave him a name. Sure, you know, we 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 made him a person where he was born. I did a lot of research for it. But what I was most proud of was that the idea of why he forgot. Because I was so naive and I don't know anything about comics. And I said, Well, what, didn't he just like didn't he just like he, he was like mentally ill or something? You know, he just messed up, something happened and he got PTSD and his brain healed. And they were like, say that again. And I was like, you are. It's like his brain papered over the cracks. And like, that's the <laughs> that's the thing to do, right? And I'm like, oh, I thought that's what he already did. So I, I thought that's what happened. And it was just my naivety. And so they had really never thought about why you've forgotten all that. And so that's kind of what became the story in, in Wolverine Origin. Cool. That's great. I, I love hearing that. Like, it, it was such an interesting thing to me because, like, you know, there was like, – did you have to dig through the scraps of it or was it kind of freeing not to? Dig like, through the scraps of how he how he had yeah, been there. They, they give hints of Weapon X and other uh, other stuff. Did you have to go through all that stuff to tell the story, or was it no? And it was better not to. Better not to. I knew yeah. about Weapon X. I at least was aware of Weapon X. You know, sure. the biggest shame I've said this a couple of times. The biggest shame is that I didn't write its sequel or write the second half of that story in that event. I should have done because I had the best story of what where he came from, what was really going on. You want to hear it? Yeah, sure, of course. The idea was that here's this emergence of mutants around the middle of the of the 19th century, the 1800s, and um, as it emerges, people become aware that they're these superpowered humans. That so, if you take it in context, what is 1860? Well, 1865 is a few years after the American Civil War. And so what you find out is that certain powerful people and groups are looking and trying to exploit the emergence of these people. And so Weapon X, what is the shape of the Confederate flag? Mm. So Weapon X was actually the Confederacy trying to rise again, and that's where they came from, and that's why they were trying to use Wolverine. That's a cool idea. It is a cool idea. Shame I never wrote it. Uh, I don't want to keep it too long. I would love to jump back to Turtles, though, because you, during 2019, if I'm not mistaken, Nickelodeon did this thing where they did, like, maybe 15 or 20 little <laughs> Turtle segments of d- different creative teams, whatever, and you reteamed with Kevin for one called Pizza Friday, wherein the four yeah. Turtles hologram themselves as humans <laughs> and then show up to April <laughs> school and fight a bunch of Krang, and it's this really goofy, fun little five minutes, maybe? Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah. yeah. yeah so, I, how did that come about? How did, did did Kevin come to you? But I, I would love to hear where that came from and what it was like doing it. Kevin and I, you know, obviously we talk so often. Um, you know, I do have a background in directing and in animation and and so on, and so it's the kind of thing I love, right? Um, I've made my own way. I, I know Kevin's quite proud of me. You know, I was the kid that he gave a job to. And now, you know, a few years later, I became an Eisner winner and I did really well. So, you know, I, I know that I owe Kevin so much for my career. And I think Kevin's always been quite proud of me for doing what I did. I was a kid. 
but he 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 believed in me and he saw what I did and he saw that I did it by myself. I didn't do it off the back of the Ninja Turtles. So I'd had this career, done really well. And, you know, we we got to talking and he said, you know, Nickelodeon just reached out. He said, um, and they really want to make these shorts. And Paul, I, I would love it if we did it together. I'd love that. And we had loads of ideas. You know, the best ideas weren't the ones that they went with. It's really? a shame. We had this really good idea that my favorite one, it was one of Kevin's, was that they they stand on top of Times Square and they go, all right, you see those hot dogs? It's like Pink's hot dogs in, in L.A. You see those hot dogs down there or pizza? Is that like a massive, amazing pizza seller in the middle of Times Square? And they love that pizza, but they can't because they're Ninja Turtles. And so the idea was that they would have to stealth across Times Square and never be seen by the multitudes, right, to get some of this pizza. I love and that. it was like it was like a joke where the last guy to get to get there gets like some, you know, like forfeit or something, right? Sure. And it was so rife with humor. That's the Ninja Turtles. Kevin knows him really well. I know him really well. Let us do that, right? And they, they didn't let us do that, but they they did let us come up do this other idea. And the idea was that it would be funny, wouldn't it, if you got to see the Ninja Turtles as the people that they really are. And what would they look like, right? Uh, there's a there's a little backhanded joke in there that when Raphael first becomes human, he's a girl. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a princess, yeah. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. They let us get away with that one. Um, but that Donnie's a nerd. Yeah. Leo's, you know, Michelangelo's just having a time of his life, right? Like, this is great. And they get to go to high school. And so they go to April's school, where she's in high school too, and they walk in and they're like, this is amazing, right? And in the middle of it, they find these exchange students that are the Krang with British accents, and they run into them and their 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 cloaking devices work off each other. And now they have to have this fight in the cafeteria. So it's this big food fight, right? <laughs> it was so stupid. But... Because it was stupid and goofy, that's what made it work. It was it was pure Ninja Turtles, wasn't it, right? I particularly love the premise of the only reason why they're going to the school in the first place is they want to experience Pizza Friday. They want Pizza Friday. It was just like, <laughs> there's pizza there. We know it's on Fridays. We're going. Like that was. I love the simplicity of that alone. It's great. It, was, it was. And, you know, when they do this thing, they're sort of like, I know that one of them at the very beginning kind of goes, like, what could go wrong? Right, yeah, like, yeah. No. <laughs> this is a bad idea all the way around. <laughs> but for them, it's like, hey, there's pizza, it's Friday, we're in, right? We want to be yeah. at the school. And so they're sort of like, what could possibly go wrong? And by what could go wrong is they just destroy the entire place. They send the crank back to their dimension. There's actually a bit at the very end where like they sort of kick one of the crank in the butt and they jump the crank jump into a portal and they go to the portal and they're gonna run in and they jump in the portal and you know, Michelangelo like picks up a hand, a bag, a purse or something, and he throws it at them, you know, a book bag, and he throws it and it hits them as they go and he goes, hey, go come back. And someone goes, Oh, that was April's book bag. And yeah, like, well, oh, that was so. a great joke. Yeah, it was a really good joke. <laughs> so it was just fun, man. It's just like, why not? The answer the answer to to why is because it's funny and cute. The yeah. answer to why not is come on, man. Like what what it's ninja turtles, right? It's fun. Have fun with it, you know. My last question for you is, who's your favorite turtle? I heard you say Donatello earlier. Why, why is that? I love Donatello. Um, I like Donatello because I'll always take the underdog. Um, in some ways, I have a big soft spot for Raphael 
for yeah. a different reason. Um, maybe I'll leave you with this. It's just a, it's kind of a beautiful story. Warning you right now, it's sad. Okay. Um, we we were so much to so many people, you know, moving, emotionally moving. People's childhoods revolved around us, and and I knew it. And um, so Donnie is the one that I love because I feel you always pick the one that you you think you're most like or something. And he's kind of a nerd and he, you know, all that stuff. Right. When I was there, I was a young guy, very young guy. And I cared very much about Make-A-Wish. And um, and we were busy. And I had someone reach out to me. Make-A-Wish said, we got some parents and they got a little boy and he loves it and he's got cancer. And, and you know, we 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 would love if you could do something for him. And I'm like, I'm pulling the stops out for this little man. I don't care, right? i got something. I've got that power. I'm going to do what I can. So rather than send him a care package, in those days, you didn't have... I think you had two licenses to dress up as Ninja Turtles. It actually seems absurd now, but there was the performance and the sort of costumes on the East Coast and the ones on the West Coast. And I managed to find the actor and the the and and get them to go down. And we got the plane flight down there, and the guy goes down, and he goes as the little boy's um, favorite, Raphael. So he gets to the parking lot, he puts the suit on, he walks in with the suit, the, the head under his arm to go in the hospital to see this little boy. And as he gets to the door, the parents are are in urgent conversation with the doctor. And it turns out, you know, that they're very worried that the boy's going to pass away right there. Mm. So they, he is thinking, it's hard for me to get through this story, by the way. So he's thinking, I should probably leave. And they see him and they call him over and he walks over and they said, listen, you know, we don't want to impose on you, but we have to ask you, you know, would you be willing to go and see him? And, and you know, it's very sad, but basically he goes in and he talks to the kid and he walks in, the kid looks like a peanut, he said. And, um, <clears throat> and the kid immediately sits up in bed. Raphael, I knew you would come. And so he's like, cowabunga, dude. And he, again, you know, he called me after and he's crying his eyes out. And he, he said, you know, little boy, he tries his best. He's like, hey, dude, how's it going? He tries to be Ninja Turtles, but he's just weeping because this little boy's so sick. And, you know, he's got tubes in him and everything. And he, um, he basically talks to him for a little bit. And... Then the little boy says, hey, you know, Raphael, I, I haven't been very well. Can I sleep for a little bit? I just need to rest a little bit because I've been, I've got cancer or something. And he says, you know, and the, he goes, yeah, no, no problem, dude. And he said, you know, will you be there when I wake up? And Raphael goes, he goes, yeah, yeah. And he never woke up. Mm. And, you know, I think of that and I think of the power of it. Yeah. And I know that the mum sent me a letter that I treasured so much. Um, and she said, you know, that was the worst day of my life. The idea of losing a child, you know, that was the worst thing that could ever possibly have happened to me. But I want to thank you because I know how much effort you put into getting that thing. And so I know that I lost my boy on the worst day of my life, but that he left with a smile. Told you it was sad. Oh, God, but thank you for sharing that. Jesus Christ. 
And so when when I tell people about my time in Ninja Turtles or doing Marvel or what I get to do as a privilege in my job, I point out that it is an absolute privilege and that Kevin knew it was a privilege and Pete knew it was a privilege. And those of us who do this, we know what privilege we have to be storytellers. And and that is the power of it, to 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 see a little boy on the next stage of his journey in the universe, see him off with with a creation of Kevin and Pete's, to do a bit of work and to help him go, and to have that profound thing. You asked me about my days in Ninja Turtles. That's the most important and interesting thing that happened to me. Wow. Yeah. Well, Paul, like, I mean, I can't thank you enough for sharing that. Jesus. Um, I mean. I, I was a huge pleasure to talk to you and you know, like I to to hear that it's like it's 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 just touching and beautiful and obviously devastating. But like it, like mm-hmm. I know turtles have meant a lot to a lot of people, myself included, but yeah, that's that's really what it's all about. So thank you for sharing and thanks for being here and uh it was a real pleasure to talk to you. Was, thank yeah. you. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Thanks, Paul. Take care. Turtles, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles.